everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Today we have a very special guest for you guys. His name is Dr. Alex Garanto. He's assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Human Genetics in Radboud UMC, Nijmegen. And we will quiz him about uh, inherited eye diseases, uh, RNA technologies, and we will learn a little bit about Alex's background and where he's heading now with his career. So I hope you're gonna enjoy this episode. Dr. Alex Garanto, hello, how are you? Hello, Welcome. good, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Alex, thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to this and coming on and, and talking to us. You're, uh, you're a specialist in eye genetics and uh, there's a couple other interesting things going on with your career right now into which we, we get into later. Uh, but maybe uh, if, you want, if you would like to tell our audience, uh, who are you, what do you do? Just, you know, just tell us who you are. <laughs> thank you, Tom. And thank you for inviting me as well to participate here. So my name, as uh, was already mentioned, is Alex Garanto, and I'm an assistant professor at the Radboud UMC, working at the Department of Pediatrics and Human Genetics. And I've been working with eye diseases oof, already for 15 years, I think, wow. a long time ago. And uh, yeah, I already did my internships on eye diseases, my PhD on eye diseases, the postdoc. So, and now I switch a little bit to neurometabolic diseases, but still working with the eye. Yeah, well, thanks God you're still working with the eye because it would be difficult for me <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, so I forgot to say that I'm the supervisor of Tom. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Tom Maybe. can't say too much. Uh, <laughs> can't say too ba much bad things about you. So, yeah, for those who, uh, who didn't know that yet, Alex also is uh, guiding me through my <laughs> PhD journey. <laughs> So um, maybe if we can uh, zoom in a little bit more in on the inherited eye diseases, can you just maybe tell us a little bit more about what they are and the characteristic of it? Well, the inherited eye diseases obviously are genetic disorders, so basically mm -hmm. caused by either dominant or recessive mutations, even mitochondrial or X-link as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically they are inherited through the family and what happens at least in inherited retinal diseases, which are a subtype of eye disease, uh, is that the photoreceptors or the cells involved in the retina that is at the back part of our eye and they, yeah, the, those cells are in charge of converting the light into signals that we can yeah, interpret and allow us to see. Mm -hmm. And when those genes involved in this uh, function uh, are mutated, what happens is that patients start losing vision until they become completely blind in most of the cases. And this is a progressive uh, mm -hmm. disorder. So it's not something that you go to sleep and next morning, oh, I cannot see. It's something mm -hmm. that happens yeah. for decades. But of course, within, let's say, the group of inherited eye diseases, there are many subtypes. Some of them go faster. Some of them appear later in life, like age-related macular degeneration, mm -hmm. etc. And just to be clear, these are the form of diseases that you can't correct just by wearing glasses or contact yeah. lenses. Those cannot be corrected. So other diseases that are could be corrected with glasses, like it's myopia or strabismus or cataracts that can be corrected by a surgery, they are more affecting the frontal part of the eye rather than the back part of the eye. And they are usually not inherited. They are there are, of course, genetic factors uh, 
in, in, uh, well, involved, but they, um, yeah, there are, there are many other factors that can play a role, like um, your health, yeah. uh, your uh, habits, what you eat. Um, smoking and exercise. Smoking, uh, yeah. exercise, you know, hormones. <laughs> Everything, basically. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Can I ask, because so you've been working in eye disease like 15 years, like what draw you into doing eye disease? Was it just a coincidence or was there like a reason that you wanted to go into this area? I think it was a coincidence and at some point it became my passion. Yeah. So basically the, the story is quite funny. Uh, so I always wanted to work in a lab, but uh, at least I, I did my, uh, my studies in Barcelona. And then at that time to work in the lab, you had to have really good grades if you wanted to, to be in one of the departments. And somehow I managed to get a, a, the highest score in the molecular genetics. And then I, my I'm sure it wasn't supervisor a of the PhD called me, hey, do you want to come? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to try. Why not? And at that time, uh, my internship kind of was uh, about finding mutations in genes uh, causing um, retinitis pigmentosa. So that's how I entered into the field. And then everything evolved. It was like, oh, we have a PhD position. We like you very much. Do you want to stay? And at some point I did my PhD and I found the eye super fascinating. And then I wanted to continue with the eye. So it was yeah. a little bit coincidence. And, that, and then, yeah, yeah go good. with the flow. And then now it's brought you 15 years and you're... Um... Yeah, you, you, you are where you are now, so I'm sure it worked out really well for you. Yeah, and it has been evolving. I mean, I yeah. started doing kind of diagnostics, then basic research, trying to identify the function of a particular gene. And then I moved more towards the translational part and develop therapies. Yeah. So I, I think I covered all the range. Yeah, and it's <laughs> like, we'll get into it later on, but the, the work that's been done now in these eye diseases is like really close to the groundbreaking so it, it must be a really interesting time to be in this field um but before we get into that um yeah like you mentioned how the eye kind of briefly works and it's super complicated i don't i don't think i'll go into all the pathways and all the different methods and ways it can uh, be affected but like i always surprised because i did a bit of a course in this like uh there's so many different ways it can go wrong like you're not surprised that it's not very more common that these eye diseases occur in the population or is there some reason that th that it doesn't well i mean first of all the proportion of i mean of course in the retina there are genes that are only expressed in the retina and those are mainly the ones that when do not work properly they cause the disease but we need to remember that the retina yeah, the retinal uh, cells are neurons. So mutations in other genes that might not be specific for the function of the retina might be also involved in neurodevelopmental diseases and maybe they can even be lethal. At least we know from several genes that if we knock out them in mouse, they, uh, they, well, they do not survive the embryonic stage. So that could be also one reason. And we also should not forget that, of course, when we, at least the work that Tom does and I do, we work with monogenic forms. So forms that only have affectation in the eye and only caused by one single gene. But for example, um, one third of the metabolic diseases also have eye affectation because the metabolism is also important, but 
they are just multi-organ diseases. So they, are, they fall into a syndrome and therefore sometimes people don't realize that, oh, they also have a eye phenotype. And I will put an example that nobody thinks easily. We have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Officially, it's a muscular disease affecting the muscle, obviously. But those patients, at, uh, after 20 years, at the age of 20 years or, or, or after, they start also to show uh, problems with the retina. But it's not the principal characteristic. But the problem is before, those patients were not reaching that age. And nowadays, they reach because there are treatments, there are ways to uh, slow the progression of the disease. And therefore, we can see that these phenotypes start appearing. So, oh, wow. I mean, there are more than we probably expect, but it also depends how you look at it. If you look from the mono-organ uh, disease, then indeed they are restricted, but still, if you take them all together, it's one every 2,000 individuals or 3,000. So it's yeah. rare, but at the limit. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's, so that's a good way of saying like So sometimes it's just not compatible with life and other times it's not obvious yeah. that it's an eye disease. Um, yeah, so what, like, what eye diseases do you work with then and like, I suppose maybe put the context of rare eye diseases, like how rare is rare in this situation? Poof. Yeah, like... <laughs> that's, that's, that's an interesting question because we have many subtypes of the eye diseases or retinal diseases. Let's be talking only about the retinal diseases. And of course, um, for example, um, Stargardt disease, that is one of the diseases we are working yeah, more um, exhaustively, let's say. Uh, it's one in 10,000 individuals, oh, more or less predicted. But then we have retinitis pigmentosa that is more one, 3,000, one, 4,000. But then within the group of retinitis pigmentosa patients, there are more than 80 genes that okay. have been associated with the disease. So basically, if you start summing up, you, you get these numbers, but then when you split them by genes or even mutations, you basically have most of the cases are maybe three, four families in the world. Oh, okay. And there are more genes that yeah, are more susceptible or they explain more causes, no? uh, more cases. So it's, the, for example, in Stargardt disease, it's really clear mutations in ABCA4. And that means that all the cases are caused by that gene. But in retinitis pigmentosa, you have recessive and dominant forms. And for example, for the dominant, it is known that mutations in rhodoxine are, well, it's the prevalent form. But for the recessive, more or less, there's one or two genes that explain maybe 10% of all the cases. And then the other one is like 1%, 1%, 1%. Yeah, 1%. Yeah, yeah. So it just, so it's, it is so broad. Uh the different small specific mutations yeah because yeah, because uh, like, i was like one in ten thousand doesn't seem that rare but then i suppose when yeah exactly you, you said you break it down um and is, is there more populations or areas that these inherited eye diseases are more common um than others well nowadays to my impression it's getting low but i think in the past this was um quite common in those populations where there's a lot of endogamy, let's say. So we can uh, go to certain areas of the Middle East, of India, Israel. Um, even here in the Netherlands, there was an island 
and they have a high prevalence of mutations in RP65. But nowadays, this island does not exist anymore because the Netherlands, yeah, is gaining uh, <laughs> well, they, space. They got rid of the, the island the for it because of it. <laughs> well, the island is now part of the land. Directly, yeah, yeah. So it's not an island anymore. So that, that means that there's more, yeah, um, yeah, there's less consanguinity, let's say, because the, yeah, when you are in a village and everyone gets married and have kids yeah. with each other, the, yeah, one thing leads to another. <laughs> exactly. It's really, it really is about like gene uh, gene flow and having an access to um, higher genetic pool to kind of um, avoid this, especially with a recessive disease, right? If you if you decline the the gene pool, there's a, the chances like are uh, climbing up for the disease to appear. Um. So. So now you have this. We've you, you told us a little bit about the diseases that you work with, the the ABCA4 and Stargard disease. Obviously, for me, it's the most important one or the <laughs> one that I treasure the most because it's the topic of my thesis. Um, but if we turn our heads towards the treatment of the eye diseases, uh, I would imagine that up until the genetic treatment was available, these sort of diseases were untreatable, right? the yeah. people people would just have to uh went blind um so once the the treatment has appeared what were the first attempts uh to uh to regain the site what would uh what was the f the first attempts of genetic treatment in the in the eye diseases that you that you uh that you know of well i mean it depends first of all regain it's something that so far is not possible because what we can do or what we aim to do is to stop or slow down the progression mm -hmm. because we need to remember that, as I said before, the, the retinal cells are neurons and they do not regenerate. So once they are dead, you cannot make them alive or, or create new ones. So for that, people are now working on... Um, uh, cell therapies but they, they are far away of uh, uh, therapeutic treatment can i sorry can moment. i just say can you clarify so that like if you don't have these genes for the retinal cells they just don't die off compared to like if you do is that how it works um what do you mean so um if you don't have if with the retinal cells when you have these mutations that will cause eye diseases why is it that um once it gets progressively worse. It's just because the cells themselves die off if the if they're not like being active. Is that how it works? I'm not because I don't. Well, I'm... there are many theories depending on the gene. For example, the the the, the gene that um, we already mentioned before, ABCA4, in principle, only affects one um, specific cell type of the retina. So we need to think that there are many uh, cells in the retina. It's a complex tissue with many layers we have two different types of photosensitive cells. So in this case, mutations in this gene only seem to degenerate or de uh, kill the, the one specific uh, type of photoreceptor of these photosensitive cells. So the theory is also that because they are involved, uh, this gene is involved in the visual cycle also affects other types of cells. And that at the same time, because one cell dies, it kind of induces the, the, the death of the neighbor oh, okay. cells so it's a little bit there's things going on so that's one of the, the theories others is just because the, the protein accumulates or because the cell cannot do the the proper function and then starts accumulating 
uh, toxic compounds. Mm -hmm. This also has been hypothesized for Stargard. So, but yeah, it's a, a little bit everything. And yeah, at some point, basically what happens is that you lose the photosensitive cells. And I, I think that would be good to keep in mind because probably we will go later into other points, but it's important to mention that. So there's, so there's no way of rescuing them once they're gone? No. So at this moment, I mean, people are trying to, for example, zebrafish regenerates. So people are trying to identify which genes uh, make the regeneration possible to see whether they can be implemented for humans. Um, there's people also trying to uh, create, well, starting from uh, stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells directly from a patient that have been corrected to inject them into the eye. And this has shown to maybe work for um, age-related macular degeneration, but then what they uh, injected was the retinal pigment epithelium cells, and they are not and neuronal cells, so just epithelial cells, and it seemed to work. But when at least what they have tried in my in mice is that when they inject photoreceptors, the difficult part is to uh, because you are putting cells from, let's say, the outside. You make them in a, in a dish and you inject them in the retina. And what is difficult is to know at what time you need to do it because if they are too differentiated they will not make connections mm. with the other neurons of the retina. Mm. But if they are too less differentiated, basically they do whatever they want and they don't become photoreceptors. Yeah. So that's mainly the critical point at this moment with uh, cell therapies. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, and what was it, sorry, and the, the genetic therapies, like how did yeah. that start off? Well, the genetic therapies, I think the, the first case, well, one of the first ones was RP65, and still uh, it started more than 20 years ago. And nowadays, it's, we can say that it's the first gene therapy compound that um, with market approval. Yeah. I will not disclose the name, because, <laughs> <laughs> but no. Um, I mean, we need to think um, that the eye is a isolated organ in our body. So there's I mean, and it's easy accessible because it's we don't need to do a major surgery. Uh, whatever we put into the eye stays into the eye because there's also a, a blood retinal barrier like in the brain. So everything stays there contained. And people at the beginning, what they were trying is to what we call gene replacement or gene augmentation. So basically you have a mutated gene and you try to deliver the copy of the gene without the mutation. And of course, this can have, um, it have many challenges because of course, all genes are tightly regulated. So if you deliver too much, it can be toxic as well. If you deliver too little or too less, it can be that you don't reach a threshold where you can mm. do something. So uh, that's where they were trying first. And then they playing with promoters, they were able to then regulate this expression. And of course, in the case of RP65, this was very successful. You also need to show that it works. They tried it in mice. They even uh, found a dog that had mutations in this gene, so they could also test it in dogs. And uh, lately, well, clinical uh, phase one clinical trial, two, three, etc. Until finally, they got market approval. But it took 20 to 25 years. And mm -hmm. now, 
everyone learned from this case because it has been pioneered and the eye at the end because of the characteristics is a perfect organ for therapeutics. Also because we need to think in terms of a clinical trial that we have two. So basically in a clini clinical trial, each individual can be its own control. Yeah. So you don't need a placebo group. You just treat the worst eye and you still have the other eye that has not been treated. And the readouts are, again, without any invasive technique. It's just best uh, visual acuity, whether you see light or not, whether you can walk in a, a labyrinth, kind of. Mm. So. Yeah, I, I remember when I was, um, when I decided to apply for the PhD uh, in, in, in Rob's and Alex's group, I was, um, uh, I was in my master's class and Trini in Trinity in Dublin, and we had a lecture about um, gene replacement therapy for RP65. <laughs> and I think that was the moment when, uh, when uh, the lecturer, oh God, I forgot the lady's name, too bad. But she showed us the, uh, this video of this, uh, of this child before and after treatment, that before the treatment, the, the kid couldn't navigate this very simplistic labyrinth. And after the treatment, uh, it was so happy. The kid was so happy to walk through the labyrinth. And I was like, okay, let's uh, let's focus let's focus on this let's see if i uh, if i can make that different so uh, yeah <laughs> it's just you're nearly there just Tom. <laughs> nearly there yeah but anyway alex you mentioned that the first uh, forms of therapy were the uh, gene replacement but i think the problem with that is some of the uh, cdnas are like too big to to be in to be packed into the the adenovirus uh, to be packed into the adenovirus uh, delivery. So I think this is the good moment to introduce the uh, anti-sense oligonucleotides or oligotherapies. They are kind of, uh, you're an expert in this, I think within, within our group and in the department, you've, you've, you've designed a lot of AONs uh, in your career. So if you could maybe put some, put some light uh, for our audience, what, what are the um, oligonucleotides in terms of therapy and how are they com competitive to their replacement therapies? I don't want to say better, but you know, comp <laughs> competitive. Well, I would not say better because yeah. there's nothing better than the other. It's more, they have different um, yeah, options. And uh, of course, um, with antisense technology, you cannot cover all the genes and all the mutations. And in the same way with gene replacement, you cannot cover all the genes, but also not all type of mutations. So um, briefly, antisense oligonucleotides from the molecular biologist perspective are small um, nucleic acid molecules, usually RNA, but they can be also DNA. And basically uh, they are just to make it easier, more or less 20 nucleotides. And they bind, uh, they are antisense and therefore they can bind complementary to um, the pre-mRNA or the mRNA, depending what you want to do. And depending also how you modify them, they can be more resistant and they can um, make that either if they bind to the pre-mRNA that you can uh, modulate splicing and splicing is just mm -hmm. removing the introns and putting all the exons together. And uh, depending also how you build them, you can degrade the transcript. Mm -hmm. And we are mainly in our group focusing on um, the splicing uh, modulating uh, antisense oligonucleotides. And what they offer is that um, they are well tolerated by the eye. They are easy to deliver. Uh, they 
because they bind to the pre-mRNA, you don't have the risk that you are overexpressing or down, well, you can downregulate the gene if you, that's your purpose, but in, with the splicing, uh, switching oligos, that's not the case. So you are always keeping the endogenous uh, expression levels and they can be very useful for uh, splicing defects. Mm. So and by splicing defects, we mean um, exon exclusion due to a mutation, uh, intron retention or um, pseudo exon that is just a piece of the intron that due to a deep intronic mutation have been recognized as an exon and it's included into the transcript, disrupt the reading frame. And of course, you don't have a final protein. So with these oligos, you can target directly those particular places and arrange that the transcript is normal again and therefore the protein mm. will uh, be synthesized again. Yeah. Yeah, and it's. I think it's good to also have uh, like a history of uh, antisense oligonucleotides that have been approved and are in therapy, right? Because that kind of a, that gives validity to your field that like we are working on something that actually is be, is being is being used and it does help patients to um, to get better. Yeah, um, I so mean, I, actually, I did not mention, but now that you mentioned this, there are sixteen or seventeen molecules already that receive an FDA or EMA approval. And mm. even though for the eye, well, let let me frame it in another way. So. Um, for the eye, at this moment, there's no molecule approved, but the first oligo ever approved uh, by the FDA in 1998 was actually for, to, to treat the eye, and it was uh, by the, to treat the CMB uh, retinitis in, in immunocompromised patients. But yeah. nowadays, because there are better treatments, uh, this disease does not occur anymore, and therefore this um, drug is not anymore available. Oh, okay. But that was the very first oligo, and actually it was aimed to degrade the virus. So it was not splicing modulation, it was more degrading the transcript. So it was binding to the, the virus to degrade the, the cargo, let's say. Mm. So in your group, like you're working with a lot of these oligonucleotides to try and treat eye diseases. And uh, how, what is it you're doing with a lot of different diseases? Is that how it, how you're um, doing? Do you mean um, how do we select the, the AONs or how we? No, no, and just basically, so you are working with AONs at the moment mm -hmm. to treat eye diseases. Um, what I can I just ask, like, what eye diseases are you, um, are you trying well, to target with these AONs? We, we have done already level congenital amaurosis. We are working on um, Stargardt disease together with Tom. And we also have uh, designed antisense oligos for choroidopenia. We have other colleagues working with Asher syndrome or that also causes isolated um, retinitis pigmentosa. It's Asher 2A gene. And we are investigating many other genes that are in the pipeline. These are the ones that we already did. And of course, for um, neurometabolic diseases, we are also investigating the potential of these oligos. And how far along have you got to the, like, to the uh, uh, approval stage, or have you got? How far have you ever got managed to get? Um... Well, I mean, uh, I think in that sense we are doing quite well. Uh, the first oligo described in the group. Uh, by Rob Collin, uh, it's now in a phase three clinical trial. 
And just to Rob Collin is the, also the other supervisor of Tom. Yeah. And it used to be my supervisor during my postdoc. So I, we basically characterized this molecule. And then, of course, um, a company, a pharmaceutical company needs to be involved because in an academic setting, we cannot afford a clinical trial. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that it's in a phase three clinical trial because it showed promising results. And also the other oligo I mentioned from our uh, colleagues in the same department, Asher 2A, it's also in a phase one, two clinical trial. And uh, they released um, a message not so long ago, I think two or three weeks ago, that um, patients were reacting really well as well. Oh, and nice. Based on that, they already uh, designed a phase two, three clinical trial that will start once probably they have all the the results nice congrats mm. um like how can you give some context like how difficult is it to go from like the lab research to um developing the like actually getting approval for the fda is it how like obviously with this uh one that was approved by the fda that took like 20 years so it's obviously such a long process um to happen well i think this is going to change but uh, I can and start by saying that these molecules are sequence dependent. So first of all, so that means that we cannot test efficacy in animal models. Yeah. Only okay. if we humanize them, so putting the human gene in the animal model. But of course, that's not always possible. So for that, we already have some struggles there on how to test efficacy. But of course, the way we do it is we have retinal organoids, and nowadays at least for the, the CEP290, the one it's uh, the molecule that is in a phase three clinical trial with the retinal organoid data and uh, some toxicity and safety uh, experiments in rabbits and non-human primates was enough to start a clinical trial. Of course, to get the FDA approval, you need to show that it also works in humans and everything. And or, of course, what I wanted to say is that this is going to probably change soon because of the um, um, Milasen, that was a uh, antisense oligonucleotide um, personalized or customized for one single patient. So it was, uh, I think, October 2019 when the paper came out in New England uh, Journal. And uh, it was a oligo for uh, Mila, that was the patient having a lysosomal storage disease. And um, Basically, they from the moment they found the mutation till the moment that Mila got the first injection, there was only one year in between. So they were able to manage efficacy wow. and, and safety and toxicology in one year because many people got together and they it was a life-threatening disease mm -hmm. and therefore they could get the yeah, acceleration in the FDA approval. Wow. But... I mean, it was coordination and, of course, money. Yeah, so, it's uh, it's um, so it is possible. Like, to if they wanted to accelerate this for certain diseases, they can do it. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah. of course, this was done more in an academic setting. We should not forget that um, pharmaceutical companies are only interested mainly in diseases that you have more than X amount of patients, but not NS1 or NS2. Yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting to actually kind of go, go, going, following on with that point, sorry. Uh, 
because uh, I don't know this you obviously you know Luxturna this is the drug that I think was the FDA approved Luxturna it's market approval it's even one step further yeah yeah, yeah. so like that this is the is the only one on the market really uh available? Yeah, Luxturna is different from what Alex was talking about oh, okay yeah. sorry <laughs> look 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 Luxturna is the virus I mentioned at the beginning for RP65. Okay. So, and, and this is the, the, I mean, now I think there are more FDA approved, but I don't, I don't think any uh, gene augmentation therapy has arrived to the market approval yet. Okay. So because what, what this is, is Lux- after the phase four. What is Luxturna then? It's a, is, is a, is it a gene therapy? Is that, it's not an, yeah. okay, grand. Um, it's a, a, a virus with RP65 inside. And basically it just replaces the defected gene. Well, it, it, it provides the, 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 the cDNA and therefore the protein hmm. that is missing in those patients at oh, RP65, okay. like ABC4, it's involved in the visual cycle. So it's really important to um, yeah recycle and eliminate toxins, well, toxic products from the, the visual cycle. Yeah. And it, what was it? Uh, isn't it the, the amazing thing with these, this therapy is that it does you only need like one inje- one injection uh a, a, over your lifetime it's not a lifetime is it for the the luxturna yes because it's a virus yeah so basically the virus infect your cells and uh, it keeps producing rp65 for the antisense oligonucleotides that's different because they are rna molecules mainly and therefore they have a half-life the good thing of the eye is because it's contained and the photoreceptors are neurons. Whatever we inject there, it does not dilute with uh, every cell division, but also it's not clear by the liver and the kidney. Mm, yeah. So in that sense, all the clinical trials, uh, the, the, the first ones uh, were injecting uh, antisense every three months. And nowadays it's already every six months. Yeah. So okay. basically patients get an injection every six months in the eye. Um, but yeah, for other diseases, it's every week or two weeks in yeah. other parts of the body or intravenous or something like this. Alex, if I can ask a question, uh, you mentioned here that there are, uh, there used to be three months in every three months injections. Now it's every six months injection. Do you think it'll be able to get to the point where we'll be able to replace the injection with perhaps like an eyedropper or something like that? Or do you think that injections are just more efficient in, de- in delivering the... Yeah, if you could give your opinion on that. Uh, I mean, not in the short future. I think we can think more about um, uh, what would be the word, like a... Uh, now it does not come to me. Like, you know, like injecting something in the eye that uh, releases the product slowly. Oh, okay. I uh, kind of, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. This could be an option, but eye drops for now, I do not see it. And I will tell you why. It's mainly because the drops are put in the frontal part. So we have the cornea, we have behind the cornea, the anterior and posterior Mm -hmm. chamber and the lens. And those particular structures are aimed to protect the eye. So they are full of RNAs and proteases. Mm. So basically our retina is completely at the back part of the eye. So if you put the product in the front, the chances that reach the back part are really low. So I think for that force, um, we will have to engineer some kind of nanoparticle or other chemistry that is able to survive all these barriers 
and reach the back part. And for now, the intravitreal injection is rather easy. It's not as complicated as the supraretinal injection for Luxturna. That mm. is really needs to be at the back part in the region where you still have, still have cells. This one is directly in the vitreous humor. It reaches the entire retina. And because these uh, oligos uh, are relatively small, uh, they can uh, enter into the cells. Mm. And mm. I'm emphasizing the size because if you talk to a chemist, um, these molecules are huge. <laughs> but for us, they are very small. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but like it is, it's amazing. Like especially, I suppose with Cluxterna, but the the improvement in your life for these patients if they get these eyes diseases, and especially, and if you only need to get an injection so uh, little, the improvement is so vast. It's it's amazing how they these treatments, what they can do for these patients, um, yeah. and but like and also what we we need to think about is that we need to treat as soon as possible because then there's more chances of seeing improvement. Mm. So if you inject when the first symptoms are detected, for instance, maybe to say something, you have 100 cells to treat. If you do it uh, at the age 20 years later, maybe there are only five cells left. So th the improvement can be quite different. And and actually for the, the clinical trial that is now in phase two, three, they uh, started already injecting now uh, kids under the age of eight because this disease starts really early in life. So they, uh, the problem is first we had, well, they had to uh, show that um, it was safe in, in, in adults before going to, to kids. Mm, yeah, right. Because we need to remember that this is not a life-threatening disease. It's, mm. um, blindness is more a um, burden, but eventually nobody's going to die from blindness. So yeah, that's that, I mean, the difference why we still need to do a lot of effort in getting approval and testing things. Yeah. It's 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 another step because you have um, these very few amount of patients that you have to can do this on, and then it's another step that you have to try and get it in kids. But I suppose the other benefit is that you don't have a a placebo group with uh, where they don't get it because I think ethically that would be very um, messed up because if it's like a year or two, that's like another year that they can't get treatment, and it reduces their chances of maybe the treatment working. Well, for the, 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 the phase three, I have to um, admit that in, they included a sham group. Oh, okay. So they do. So it's uh, only, but um, they did it because um, there was so much variability between patients that there was yeah, concerns whether it, it was something, yeah, how to say it, yeah, imaginary oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. or not. So basically in the phase two, three, they are trying two different concentrations or um, 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 doses. And then one third group has a sham um, procedure. So just do like they are injecting something. Mm. So they go to the same procedure. And basically after one year, if uh, there's improvement, all the patients that were injected with antisense will, uh, the other eye will be injected. And the ones in the sham group will get injection in both eyes. Oh, okay. So basically, it's kind of they correct. And th we need to keep in mind that they always start with the worst eye. They okay. never start with the best one. Okay. So there, there is ways to try and like make it 
like better ethically for yeah okay um and the other thing i wanted to mention with the whole clinical trials um i know with luxterna i was looking into the prices so it's $850,000 or $425,000 per eye. And it's usually like the governments or in the US, I think sometimes the families have to pay this um, to treat the individual. Like, what do you think? Should drug companies be able to charge this extortionate amount for these very people with, um, when only very few people have it? Or do you think it is extortionate that they can do this? Well... Extortion is such a strong <laughs> word. I don't know. <laughs> well, so, I don't know. I, I mean, that that's a, a, a difficult part, no? And of course, you you need to understand all all positions. Of course, from the perspective of the researcher, so like me, for instance, I do the things because I want to uh, improve the life of the patient. So for me, it could be, yeah, the cheapest possible. But companies, if you go there, they also invest a lot of money in bringing this molecule to the, the, the market and uh, they need to recover the money somehow, even if they don't make a benefit just to recover the money. Mm. And for Luxturna, we need to keep in mind that it's one single injection. So it's not the same if you, for example, um, design a drug like uh, to say something, paracetamol, you know, mm. uh, you can sell it really cheap because People, people take come, it yeah. quite often and you are selling it constantly. But we are talking about something that if you get it, you don't need a second injection. So that's where you need to, to find the balance. And of course, um, in Europe, we have been a little bit more cautious. I mean, so far, not all countries are already uh, accepting Luxturna as a treatment. Good thing compared to the States, I'm not going to go in. <laughs> To detail because they have a complete different system but here in europe at least um the treatment is covered by the yeah the the insurances and uh, basically for example i know that germany um has agreed to pay in terms based on the efficacy of the drug so basically if um there's a benefit for the patient for x amount of years we pay this if uh, the patient after this amount of years still has a benefit, we will pay the other part. Yeah. Uh, in the Netherlands, it was approved last December as well. And I don't know ex the exact details whether they also did something similar to Germany. In France and the UK, it's also being already administered. And I know that other countries like Spain are still negotiating because the price in Europe is 700,000 euros. Yeah. Both eyes, one single injection, including the surgery. Oh well, I think uh, I think with the pharmaceutical companies, there's always gonna be like the issue of money, no matter how they how they do it or what they do it, because I think people just have people have people have the right to be healthy, I suppose, you know, and they can and they can be like, oh, how they can how dare they charge us money just so I can be healthy? But like, I suppose that. That's the way the people can think about it. But I also understand, just like you said, that there is a lot of money put into these these researches by the pharmaceutical companies. And they also have to pay their stuff. There is like thousands of people employed working in these plants. And, you know, they... Will I, they, uh, will I play the violin for the pharmaceutical companies? <laughs> and you, you also need to keep in mind that all the drugs develop at preclinical level. 
only a, a very small percentage reach the market. Mm. So I just yeah. I, I just think that um, th- the fact that there's no other options for these and the improvement is so vast, it's just like they have all the power and then they're just like willing to like really make it difficult. I, like and the governments have to pay up because there's nothing else they can do. So I I kind of get they put a lot of money in it, but I'm like is this not one of them situations they can make money from a lot of other products? Is this not something that they can help subsidize because these be it's to help it's such a it's able to improve people's lives so much. Well, um, I mean, be, besides, also we need to keep in mind that besides the price, this is the first gene therapy kind of yeah, mar- with yeah. market approval. So it's everything new. For that reason, also took twenty five years to yeah. get it there. And now other drugs like nusinersen for um, uh, spinal muscular atrophy went faster uh, than, than, for example, Luxturna. No, I mean, at some point, we learn from each mm. other. SEP290 also took us 10 to 12 years to reach the, the, the clinics. And now with ABCA4, we hope to make it shorter. Because, yeah, it's, um, you learn all the steps that you need to do and all the paperwork. And at some point, the... The yeah, ethics committees and everything, they already are getting familiar with this. Because, mm. yeah, the first time that you go, yeah, I want to inject a gene, in, probably they look at you like, oh, are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, we, we need to keep in mind that, yeah, at the end, depending how you do the things, it may sound like you are modifying organisms and, yeah. Alex, I want to... I wanna- quickly just go back uh, when you were talking about um, the oligonucleotides and the antisense oligonucleotides because um, obviously when I started to and I, I was learning about it I kind of and we start recognizing the different chemistries used to improve the antisense oligonucleotides I was I was just learning it and I was just taking it for granted that these are the chemistries that make the antisense oligonucleotides more resistant but now I'm thinking is there any way that the people research different uh, chemical modification or is it do they all just came across by accident where it was somewhere noticed that like oh this modification actually does this it could be helpful with with this drug or was it like more purpose research where like let's see what would resist uh, endonuclease breakdown well i think in general people started to try different ways, whatever mm. it was possible within yeah, yeah. chemical modifications. And some parts were kind of known, this can be more resistant or not. And at some point there are many others that yeah. never succeed because either were toxic or they were not uh, doing what they were supposed to do. And still nowadays people come up with new chemistries. When you go to the oligo meeting, it's crazy. <laughs> when they show new chemistries uh, we have also the the our, um, our colleagues in in in, in france the, with the tricyclo that it's another chemistry well directly a modified um, dna uh, on its own and uh, they are trying to improve and what seems that works for one organ seems to be toxic for another organ so uh, it's trying to find a balance and of course the the tumo and the tuome uh, they have been there and we know that they are safe for all tissues. So mm. basically, people keep going with them, but okay. that doesn't mean that in parallel, the, the real chemist people are not trying to play and find <laughs> yeah. something even better. 
So, um, so now that we talking about the techniques and 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 stuff like that, um, I want. So let's sum up. At this moment, you you you've mentioned the the gene replacement therapy uh, for the eye for the inherited eye diseases. You we we've mentioned antisense oligonucleotides, or even the uh, just oligo based therapies. But you also work on the CRISPR technology at the mm. RNA level, right? Well, DNA and RNA. DNA and RNA. So how? How how do you how do how do you bring in the CRISPR into this whole uh, the, the treatment development? Uh, where does the CRISPR falls in in this treatment development uh, procedure? What do you exactly use CRISPR for, if you can well, tell? Well, uh, basically to to edit the genome or to modify the RNA. <laughs> So you just cut out, uh, but this is at the cell level, right? At the cellular base level, right? You, yeah. You, you... I mean, we, we need to differentiate now because we are introducing a new concept. Mm -hmm. So basically in gene augmentation, we just deliver the gene and it's expressed there, but that's not integrate. Uh, if you deliver, of course, with an adeno-associated virus, if you deliver with other viruses, they integrate, it integrates in your genome. Mm -hmm. Antisense are also transient, then they, they bind complementary to the pre-mRNA. And then if we go to genome editing, you modify directly the DNA. So basically there's no way back. Mm -hmm. So if you make a change in your DNA, it stays there. It's irreversible. Genome editing. Exactly. And of course, there's now the new option that is the RNA editing that you can modify the RNA and then that part will not be permanent because the RNA is synthesized constantly. And you don't change the DNA. So would the RNA uh, modification by CRISPR that would require injections of CRISPR to the to the patients, the same way antisense oligonucleotides are injected? Yeah, but probably maybe with one single injection with a virus would be enough. Okay, I see now. All right, very very smart. Very, but uh, very I mean, good. for example, for the genome editing, the eye again is at the forefront of therapeutics, mm. and uh, for the same mutation that there's uh, an antisense oligonucleotide for CEP290, the one that is in a phase three, there's a phase one two clinical trial using genome editing for the same mutation, mm. and basically uh, what they do is they. Uh, cut a piece of the intron, so they need two guide RNAs, one upstream and the other one downstream of the mutation. And then in an AAB, they deliver the Cas9. And then on top of that, it's not clear because, of course, everything is patented, not disclosed, etc. But there's or either a third guide RNA that cuts the Cas9 to deactivate it or the, the virus itself. And in that way, they can regulate because, of course, once you cut your part of the genome, because these cells do not divide, mm -hmm. you don't need the Cas9 anymore there. So basically, if you keep having the Cas9 there, eventually there can be off targets because if you have a lot of nucleases inside your cell mm -hmm. and the, it cannot do anything, maybe at some point just can yeah bind to any place and start cutting. So basically, I think... Uh, what they do is they try to kill the virus because the, the protein is still around. So it uh, cuts the virus in that way. All the guide RNAs are not produced and the, the Cas9 is also not produced. And at some point, like all the proteins have a half-life, it will disappear and will be degraded. And mm -hmm. hopefully the function has already been done. Okay. Um, 
I did, yeah, exactly. You mentioned this the the off target with CRISPR. I think that was one of the uh, like quote unquote red flags with CRISPR. People yeah. were wor- worrying about it getting like completely off target and doing some crazy things in the body. From the point where the CRISPR was introduced into the research environment to like today, do you think that the do we do you think that at this point we know CRISPR and how it works so well that the worry about off target is not as huge as it was at the start, or is it still something that you know it's very very much so real? I would say we know more, but I don't personal opinion mm. i don't think we know everything okay <laughs> will it live up to the hype do you think well will it live up to the hype crisper crisper i mean the the, the the crisper i mean it's constantly evolving yeah yeah i mean if, if you go from the same paper at that time you could only do one single let's say um edit like edit. <laughs> um, uh, a particular method or well type of, 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 of change and now all of a sudden you can already, ah, if you put it with an ADAR, you can do a G to C change. You, if you put a template, mm. you can correct. If you do this, this, if you deliver as protein, it has more efficiency than if you deliver a plasmid. So it's evolving. I mean, it's insane. And now we have also prime editing mm. and yeah, there's, it's getting, I mean, I think we know a lot more, but I think we haven't reached the, right. the, the max yet. There's still too much to know and too much that we can still modify and and do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think we cannot we cannot not mention uh, this. Recently was very very recently was this media re- media release for the optogenetic therapy uh, where they used uh, proteins from algae and they injected them into, into humans. But I suppose I give you the platform now, Alex, I suppose you <laughs> might be able to, to can you just bri- briefly just walk us uh, what what happened or maybe what is optogenetics? Because I think people who read these headlines and they were like, wow, blindness Algae, can, algae can cure, cure blindness? <laughs> yeah. Like, where do I get this? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, let, let, let's start with a basic concept that I think... Um, we should have discussed already at the beginning. <laughs> so um, the importance of uh, the important part of gene therapy is that you need to know the mutation or the gene that is involved. So the sooner you have your genetic diagnostic, the sooner you can develop a gene therapy, a, a specific gene therapy, let's call it like this. But of course the disease progress and there are patients that reach, let's say the total blindness and still they don't have a label. So a gene, when you talk to them, they really think it's like a label. So they don't know the gene that is mutated and therefore they are not eligible for any treatment. Mm. And also because of the time that has passed, those patients do not have photoreceptors left. So they don't have the photosensitive cells. So this, algae proteins or other chimeras that have been done combining um, channel proteins with um, algae proteins or other uh, proteins of the human um, uh, origin, it's mainly they react at very low levels of light. And by delivering them in a virus into the eye, they go to the cells that are still left. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really difficult to explain without having an image, yeah. but if we would have an image 
like imagine like kind of a house. The rooftop would be the photoreceptors. That is the, the, the part that is more at the back part. And then we have the, 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 the first floor will be the bipolar horizontal cells, etc. And then at the bottom, the ganglion cells that are the ones that will uh, create the optic nerve and go to the brain. Mm -hmm. So basically what happens is that uh, in blindness, the first layer that gets destroyed is the upper one, but you still have the first and the ground floor of the house. So these uh, optogenetic molecules are aimed to bind to the ganglion cells or to the bipolar cells uh, to create a stimulation. Of course, those patients will not be able to uh, distinguish colors. Um, they will not have visual acuity, but they will be able to see shadows. Okay. And we need to remember that shadows can already be a big um, improvement in the quality of life of those patients because yeah. it can avoid that they uh, jump into a tree or a traffic light, mm. another person, because they cannot really see them. And all of a the sudden they see movement, they see shadows. And, and, and that's mainly what optogenetics is aimed to, like also the retinal implants. So they are aimed to improve vision, but not to the extent of what we as healthy yeah. individuals can see now. Yeah, I think it's very true what you said, because I think like people who have uh, acute vision, they take they take certain things for granted, you know, and but actually that's I think that's it's exactly what you said, like the ability even to recognize shadows, it could create so much difference for difference for someone who is like basically surrounded by darkness majority of, of his or her life. So, yeah, and exactly being able to see a pedestrian crossing or a tree or anything like that yeah no mm -hmm. i um, i think people do take certain things for granted and um, it really does make a difference yeah. uh, and the fact patients. that they use the the algae protein is mainly because it's uh, sensitive at very low uh, wavelength um, mm. signals so basically in the blue area or uh, around that and that that means that you are making those cells really sensitive mm. And what did you think it'll have, uh, it could actually be used potentially, or is it just one of these things that we'll never hear about again? Well, I mean, optogenetics has been studied for many years. Yeah. And at the end, it does the same of the photoreceptor implants, while the retinal implants, that they, they are just gadgets that are put in the back of the eye and it's like a chip and allows you to also see shadows. So I think that's... Uh, um, possible solu therapeutic solution for those patients that were not on time to have mm. a genetic diagnostic. And I mean, it seems, I mean, nowadays we diagnose a lot of patients, but we need to keep in mind that 35% of the patients still do not know the gene yeah. or, or the mutation they have. And uh, of course, there are many factors there. We're still not there with the sequencing techniques, but there are many genes that we don't know whether, I mean, when we sequence the entire genome, there are so many variants that you don't know mm. which variant can it be um, causative or not. And, and basically, the way we try to do it is first look if more families have the same mutation, but then when you get a really rare mutation that could be, then you need to do a lot of functional tests yeah, to yeah. prove that eventually this is the cause of the mutation, the, the disease, and there's always a big delay. Yeah. Yeah, but and, it, this, so uh, this would be just like a, a way of being a step above, like instead of going that yeah. deep down, it, it kind of is a general one. So 
yeah, it is. So it is a very useful proof of concept and shows that potentially could be used. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I suppose the last thing before the or about the RNA is I think about everyone knows the vaccines and the RNA technology, and we've seen how like over the last year this technology has come on so like exponentially. Like, how excited are you by like RNA technology? You're involved in this in eye diseases. Like, what what's the limits of the potential? Is it lim unlim limitless? Well, I think there's a lot of potential. I don't, I mean, everything has a limit. Yeah. In this life, everything has a limit. <laughs> so, no, but I, I think the, the good thing of the, 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 the vaccines, and I don't want to talk too much about it yeah. because it's a monotopic, but um, it's that they have put in the spotlight uh, RNA which, yeah. and nucleic acid therapies, which for many years they have been ignored, even though they were there, but people even did not know what you were doing. And you were saying RNA-based therapies, they were looking at you. Can you explain what RNA-based therapy means? And nowadays we don't need to explain it because yeah. everyone all of a sudden knows know what uh, uh, RNA is. So it's kind of, of funny that we need to skip that that step. But um, I think if, if for our field is, is really good. And I think this also will help with the regulatory um, institutions mm. to get approval faster and in terms of the, the 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 limit, I think for the eye, I mean for other diseases, for example, mRNA therapies that will not be um, anti-sense, so it would be more like the, the vaccines. The, um, this can be very useful for diseases affecting the liver and and other organs like the kidney because RNA it's easily going to the liver and the kidney, but. Um, for example, for the eye at this moment, I still do not see it. And one is because the um, half-life of the mRNA is still shorter than the one of the, um, the uh, antisense because we cannot modify the entire RNA. Um, yeah. we, we can mainly secure with putting caps. Uh, we can decrease the immunogenicity by making change, change, changes here and there, but we cannot... Um, make it last longer, at least not for six months, probably. Yeah. And the other is that the mRNA is delivered and immediately the protein will be produced. Yeah. And as I said before, with gene augmentation or the, the gene replacement, whatever you want to call it, it's important to regulate the expression. And for those viruses, for instance, what they did is use promoters that can regulate the expression, but here you need then to play with the dose of the mRNA because mm. if you deliver too much, it can be toxic. Yeah. And not because the mRNA itself is toxic, it's because you are producing too much protein that the cell cannot handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And uh, I think that's still the, the problem for the eye or the brain. I think for other mm, diseases, it can be more promising but for the eye or the brain, it's still uh, a challenge because we need to regulate the expression somehow. Mm -hmm. So your research is still safe yet, Tom. You won't be overshadowed by the RNA vaccines. <laughs> well, my research is excellent. That's all I have to say about it. Um, Alex, we're going to put uh, the, the spotlight back on you and your career now for this question. So um, uh, you are, I think I can say that, that you are stepping away from being strictly involved with uh, eye, genetic eye diseases and now you're venturing into uh, metabolic diseases um, area. 
So have what are why are you changing the careers and what are the challenges that you foresee or have already encountered um, on this career change pathway? That's a tough one. <laughs> no, I, I mean, um, I will start for the second one, well, the, the, the change itself. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the change is not that big. At the very beginning, I, I, I have to be honest that I was a, a little bit scared of me doing the, the transition. But at the end, the techniques are kind of the same. The only thing that changes is the disease. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand the disease. And for me, what makes it challenging, and I think it's super interesting, is that while the eye, we can treat it directly by injecting into the eye. For neurometabolic diseases, usually you have a multi-organ disease. Mm. So for example, if we think um, about uh, sugar and Larson syndrome, that mm -hmm. is a complex, uh, complex lipid disorder, it has skin, brain, and eye affectation. If we think about um, congenital disorders of glycosylation, they have muscle, they can have liver, brain, uh, possibly also eye, because mm -hmm. sugar metabolism is also involved in the eye. So um, it's a different world, and you need to think from another perspective, because you need to think what you need to treat first. Mm -hmm. What is more urgent to treat? Rather, in the eye, it's only the eye. We just need to treat the eye. That's it. Right. And here it's like, oh, I have 40. It's the same that happened with Mila. Mm -hmm. At the end, Mila it was also neurometabolic disease. Um, she lost already the vision, and she was having a lot of seizures, uh, seizures, and then they were super frequent. And she was losing speech. And uh, basically what the clinicians decided is that first they had to treat the brain. Yeah. And by treating the brain in the same way that um, is used for spinal muscular atrophy, the seizures decreased and uh, the quality of life of Mila improved, even though she still had other issues in other uh, organs. And eventually, uh, and sadly, this February, Mila passed away. Yeah. But the, the, if the family keeps saying that the quality of life increased a lot because of having a seizure, well, maybe 50 or 100 seizures per day to have two or three, it's a big difference. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I think what I'm learning a lot from stepping to, to the neurometabolic field is that I have more connection with clinicians and I also can see what are the necessities of the patients. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah in terms of developing therapeutics. While for the eye, this part was not there. And we, we had connection with ophthalmologists, but was not that as, in, as an intense as I have it now, okay. that I have weekly meetings with clinicians. Mm. But it's nice that you could bring this, uh, this luggage of experience from the, from the previous field and still being able to, to apply into these new, yeah. new medicines. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of would say it's a it's a good example to 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 show how like we always learning. There is not there is never end to uh, to a to a learning. Like you you yourself are like experienced researcher, and you know you you guide me through my PhD and other people, and yet you still find yourself on this pathway of uh, of learning, which I think it's um it's yeah it just shows and that everyone should be aware that there is never too too late. But you should uh, always challenge yourself as well, no matter oh, yeah. how experienced you're in something. Well, and we keep learning constantly. I mean, if we, yeah, if we, 
yeah, wouldn't know everything. Why we go to the university, to the school? Why? Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Every day there's something new to learn. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> so this is something that I do. Uh, I, I, in reference to the next question, um, first of all, do you ever look uh, for your name on the PubMed just to kind of make yourself feel better and see how much you published? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, for that reason, no? and no, not to feel better, but it's true that uh, every now and then I check not, it's mainly when, for example, a paper has been accepted or something just to check if it's already online or not, mm. because sometimes for grants, they only allow you to put 10 papers. So basically the trick is that you put your name and then copy the link and put the link that people can still <laughs> click the link and see all the publications, but okay. I don't do it to increase my ego. Okay. Maybe when I'm going to have more papers, I'm going to stop looking. <laughs> I don't just... think so. I think it'll always, it'll <laughs> be always an ego boost. It's a correct... well, I mean, every now and then it's really useful because sometimes they ask you, oh, how many papers do you publish? And then you also, they, you know that they will check PubMed. Mm. So basically <laughs> it's better if you first check yourself because it can happen that your papers or are uh, either not indexed in PubMed mm. or they are not yet there because they are so new that they did not have time to put it. So it's always good to check your name and see, okay, the number is the same one I put in the grant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's better that it's always yeah, less than the real one. In case If you have something pending, <laughs> it's better that when they check, it's one extra than that you put more than actually are there. <laughs> and, uh, and also, which scientific paper brought you the most satisfaction when you saw it uh, already on the PubMed uh, that it's there? I mean, there are many. <laughs> mm. I mean, uh, I think for me, the best one, well, not the best one, but I think it's because of the frustration that it caused. I think the most special one for me would be the in vitro, in vivo characterization of the oligo um, for set to 90, mm. published in 2016. And that paper was well, included work that started in 2012 by me. I mm -hmm. mean, before the animal model was already done by, by Rob. So basically started earlier, but for, it was four years of work and a lot of frustration because even though the results were really nice, um, all journals were rejecting the paper, even though the reviewers were quite positive mm -hmm. about it. And it was mainly, it's a rare disease. You should go to a specialized journal. So I'm not going to lie that this paper was rejected 12 times and was accepted in the 13th. Oh, uh, wow. Lucky 13. So that, that, that moment, it was really like, even though we aim higher, because of course in academia, still impact factor is a problem. And I hope this change soon. Uh, but yeah, we were aiming for a high impact paper and at the end was not, but still it's the paper that I have with most citations and even won an wow. award, but the foundation of fighting blindness USA. So mm. as the most, um, yeah, the paper with the most impact in the field, That's even crazy. though it's just in a regular uh, journal. And of course the, the other one that I also have a very uh, special, yeah, 
it's the, the first paper the first paper is over yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely tom just had that this year was it tom yeah first? yeah uh, me and well, tom uh, already has two so yeah but it was a uh, yeah the second one was me and nuria uh nuria is our fellow phd and colleague from in the group uh that was our first co-shared first outro paper so it was um it was fun working on it together um you mentioned dissatisfaction with the impact factor do you would you like to elaborate on this or do you not do you not feel like <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, i mean um academia um is changing i'm not going to lie that uh, mm-hmm. i'm going to be fair in saying that uh, there are measures being taken to avoid this but still impact factor and number of publications independently of the impact of your research um, is still a big piece. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes publishing in a higher journal does not mean more quality. Let's call it like this. Mm. And sometimes publishing in, in high impact journals also involve uh, contacts. Okay. So it's not always... I mean, it, for that reason, does not mean it's what I said. I mean, my paper, it's now cited a lot. And it, it, from all the ones I have is the one with more citations. And, um, and it was published in a journal that it's getting down. So I think now nowadays it's impact factor four point something. Mm-hmm. But of course, each domain is completely different. I mean, ophthalmology, the highest one is... Uh, Uh, that accepts molecular work because the first one is only reviews and then the other ones are mainly clinical. I think it's the the, the first one that accepts molecular work is impact factor three. Okay. And yeah. and of course, if you go to nature, it's 30, but yeah, <laughs> you you cannot, I mean, it depends on the research you do. And, and I mean, at the end, more or less what this impact factor says is how many citations you will get. No? And if mm. you publish in something impact factor four, you expect four citations, but then you can get 80. That yeah. means that your work is really well appreciated by your colleagues and in your field. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this has more impact, at least to me, than um, having a nature paper. Yeah. yeah. What? Why did you, like, was there any, when, when you were getting rejected, like, 12 times you'd ever just like oh it's not going to get published i should just give up like what made you keep going well i mean the 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 story was longer than that so we first tried to publish the cellular part and even though um what i said reviewers were super positive the mainly the rejection came by the editor And uh, at some point in the last rejection, I think it was the sixth one or seventh, we asked directly to the editor why it was rejected. And then what the editor mentioned is that you are missing in vivo data. So basically at that time we had the the humanized mice. Uh, So we decided to do more experiments. So it took me another year to uh, collect all the in vivo data and we added and basically what we did was start again to go to the same journals in the same order mm. well we started with the last one because they told us oh if you yeah. have in vivo um, it will be better so we basically said okay we have done now the in vivo 
but then they rejected. But then we started to go to the same journals. And then at the end, when we try a different one, it's when we get, got lucky. Um, but most of them were rejected even at the desk of the editor. Oh, so wow. only two times went to revisions. And for that reason, it was frustrating that you see that the re reviewers were nice, but the editor was saying no. Yeah. And usually the editor just followed the advice of the, the reviewers. But yeah, he was like, oh, it's a very um, uh, yeah, rare disease, um, ophthalmology. You need to go to a very specialized journal for that. We even discussed this with um, other colleagues. They read our paper. Like, okay, at some point we were like, "Do we? Is it us that we think that our work is super good and maybe it's just average?" <laughs> <laughs> and they were really excited as well. So at some point we were really, yeah, disappointed. Yeah, no, I, com I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, so frustrating when uh, you know that especially after you, you addressed all the comments that the editors had and like you feel that you have this complete manuscript uh, that is appraised by your other colleagues and the people are still trying to look for a holes. And um, yeah, very frustrating. No, and it was kind of funny because even before that paper was published, I was getting talks in international conferences for the abstract. Mm. That usually they, I mean, it's really hard to, to, to get a talk in an international meeting like um, Arvo or the OTS. And I was selected for both to explain that paper, but yeah. it was still unpublished. Do you do you think that the, the journals or the editors, do you think they learn from the, their mistakes? Like they look back and, and they see like, well, that should be accepted. It is of relevance to the world of science. I mean, I, I don't think there are mistakes, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, keep in mind that the editor does its export in his or her field, mm -hmm. and but they need to evaluate many other papers. Right. Yeah. And it's always difficult for that reason, at least when I've been in editorial boards and everything, uh, if I don't know about the topic, I always trust the reviewers. And if the reviewers suggest that um, the paper is valuable for the field, mm -hmm they also convinced me independently whether I understood or not the paper, because sometimes it's so far away from my own research that I cannot put it in perspective whether this is good or not. I, for me, it can, okay, it sounds good, but it's something new, it's something um, high impact mm. or not. These things, you don't know. I mean, especially if you receive a cancer paper, I, I'm, I don't work with cancer, yeah. so I don't know the, how this paper will impact the field. So it's always difficult. And I think for that reason, you trust the opinion of the experts that usually are the reviewers. Yeah. yeah. You have to put the trust in someone, I suppose, at some point. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned how the process is changing now slowly. Like, do you think we sh it should be allowed more open access to science rather than a way it is now, like how we have to always publish in a journal get that that's how you get published rather than just like letting it be openly accessed to everyone well open access nowadays for most of the european grants and national grants it's mandatory and i think it should be like this because yeah. uh, science and re research results should be available to everyone and and I, I, at least in, in our group we try to publish as much as possible everything in open access 
Um, and what was the other question? Sorry. It's just like, do, do you think it's a good idea? As oh, yes, yes. Like, you don't think, because I always feel like, in it, maybe with I suppose with this pandemic we've talked about this a lot on the podcast so like so much can get out there that maybe isn't accurate so how do you get a good balance do you think is it possible with open access well I think open access allows you to have access no I mean I'm, I'm going to put an example that maybe when you were doing the master thesis and you were writing the your 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 report and all of a sudden you find a reference and then you, oh, you cannot access, you need to pay. How yeah. do you feel? <laughs> so I, go, really... I know where I go anyways. I go to a certain <laughs> website. <laughs> so it's, it's really frustrating. So for me, open access should be a must. And um, I think the other thing that, uh, um, at least with other colleagues, we are also promoting a lot is the publishing of... Um, negative or inconclusive mm. data yeah. so we are in um yeah the environment or the situation tells you oh, you can only publish because it's what reviewers expect from you that you will only publish the nice results that make sense and yeah it gives you the perfect hypothesis and everything but i mean when you are trying and you use all the perfect controls and the work has been done as it should be, and it does not work, this should be also considered for publication. Mm, yeah. Because this avoids that, for example, in another lab, they are going to start all over again the same because they didn't know, hey, we tried it, it did not work. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we are putting more emphasis in. You can see that several journals even have this negative data or unconclusive data uh, special issues because i think it's uh, very helpful for um, the entire field yeah yeah and in that way not we don't need to be constantly inventing the wheel yeah. well i always think though with the, the negative how do you get that information out there because i suppose if they don't if you do publish it because i'm sure they'll just keep it in like an appendix or somewhere like in the back of the journal that no one maybe will look so uh, you just hope that if it did get published, it would be accessible for people. Well, I mean, I, I, I publish a kind of a negative data paper. I mean, the humanized model that we use, it does not have any phenotype. It even does not do the splicing defect. Mm. And I still publish it. Mm. I just said, well, we made the model. This is what it is. And mm. it was accepted. I mean... And did people ever get, did you get feedback from other labs to say, oh, thanks for letting us yeah. know? Other people, thanks to that paper, started to check things in advance before making a humanized model. Wow, so. that's that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 what you want. Like, um, yeah. Uh, so maybe the final question, because we've gone. I think we've nearly an hour and a half now. So, um, but what do what would you be your advice then? Like looking back on your career and you're going into a new field now, what would your advice be for young people in science? Like how how should they shape their their career and um, progress into in science, like I suppose. Well, my first advice is that um, starting, I mean, of course, you need to like to work in the lab, read papers, write papers. And if you don't like that, research and science is not your thing. And, and um, I think the second advice would be starting in order is when you 
try to go for a PhD is that you find a topic that motivates you because depending on the country, three to five years of yeah, being stuck with the same um, topic. So if you don't like the topic at all, uh, it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, also because at some point your project is your kind of entire life. So you wake up thinking about your project, you go to sleep dreaming about your project as well. So basically uh, your project is the center of your world. So if you don't like, um, yeah, that's a, a big problem. Whenever you apply for a position, always talk to the people in the lab because it's also important to have connection with your supervisors, but also with the knowing the opinion of the people right in the lab. And then decide if you want to go for industry. In industry, you can also do research. It's done in a completely different way, but there are many things similar or you want to go to academia. And if you go for the second option that, um, my advice will be that you go to another lab, that you don't stay in the same lab. You can always come back if you want, but um, the problem, at least for obtaining funding, is that then you will be criticized that you don't have experience enough in other labs, yeah. so that you have been the, your entire career in the same lab. And, um, and I think from what I learned that I was so naive from my side, I think is that you, if you want to pursue a academic career, that you start checking what you need in advance. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I mean, I'm an open book, so everyone knows that. But I mean, for instance, I really like my job and I was doing my postdoc and I was working and doing a lot of experiments and enjoying a lot, but I never pay attention to what I needed to become, for instance, a principal investigator, which I, I am now, uh, I am now, uh, or a group leader or assistant professor. So basically, I realized all of a sudden, okay, I've done already, I'm in my fourth year of a postdoc, and all of a sudden I found out, oh, you need to have a grant. Uh, you need to have this. You need to have this amount of PhDs. You have to, and, and it's like, uh, okay, so how am I going to do it? if I did not pay attention to all these criteria in advance, and of course they change depending on the institution, but if you know more or less what you need, you also can already work on that. Mm. And you can also negotiate with your supervisor, like, okay, I need this and this, can you help me or not? Or, or look in other places or establish other types of collaborations. But yeah, all of a sudden I had to do everything in kind of a year and it's not possible. Yeah. Well, so I think that's important that um, you check what the requirements are to keep progressing mm -hmm. and that it's not, yeah, that when you realize it's too late and <laughs> you need to, to rush mm -hmm. and do uh, triple work or even <laughs> quadruple work to be able to reach the goal. Mm -hmm. No, thank you very much. I spend enough time in the lab as it is, so I better yeah. start planning in advance. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really good advice. I think um, yeah. for any young person um, listening who wants to, if they have a goal where they want to get to, make sure to. Yeah. And I mean, at the end, it's just a flow. I mean, in my case, everything. Yeah, I went with the flow completely. I like research, and I. Yeah, I I was lucky in that sense, but um, yeah, it's. Um, 
yeah, you need to do also what you like and what you feel that it's good. And yeah, there will be always options. I mean, there's always the, the fear, oh, what about if I don't succeed or if I don't reach this or that? Mm. But I mean, there's always ways to make it work and there will be always alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll look back and when you get uh, a graduate as Tom who will win the Nobel Prize for medicine, you'll be like, oh, perfect. Uh, Here yeah. we are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so thank you very much for the interview. It was really, um, really enjoyed it. Really interesting discussion. Um, if people wanted to find out more about you or your research or your group, would you rec- is there anywhere you could find you or would you want to let Yeah, well, we have a website and... Um, Colin hyphen garanto hyphen lab.com, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's dot com. Uh, we, I also have Twitter at Handritu in case you look for me. And yeah. um, I'm also on LinkedIn with my name, Alex Garanto. And yeah, okay. I think that's the way yeah. to reach me. Thank you, Alex, for this. That thank was great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So that was our episode today. Uh, we had a really interesting guest, Alex Granto. I hope you enjoyed it. I thought it was really interesting. Gives a really good insight into the whole inherited eye diseases, what um, what eye diseases there are, and using uh, various different genetic treatments, such as AONs and uh, other kind of therapies. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next episode, we're hoping to have another guest on, two guests in a row. So uh, stay tuned for that. And yeah, stay skeptical, guys. Stay skeptical. Bye-bye.